Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'd like to draw him out a bit on Obama, a bit out on global affairs, and also I can't resist asking a few media questions. We have a common interest there. And then I would really like to get it transitioned then after about 20 minutes to questions from the audience, so be thinking of those questions and raise your hands. And John has assured me that um, everything is on the table for discussion. So there's our game plan for this evening. Let me start by posing a question about President Obama and the Obama administration. I think that's uppermost on many people's minds. He has dramatically reshaped how America and the world, I think, views the U.S. presidency. Talk a little bit about how those differing, those two perceptions, the U.S. perception and the world perception, differ. And what does that portend for President Obama um, his ability to succeed on a national and international stage? Well, a hard, hard question to answer very quickly, but if you look, and can you hear me at the back? Um, I think if you look at Obama now, where he stands, I think that there was always going to be a, a difference between the way that the rest of the world viewed Obama and the way that Americans do. And I think there is, there is a gulf opening up a bit. I think outside America, there is still a degree of seeing him almost immediately as a, as a savior um, in a vast amount of the world. You look at polls inside America, you look at the kind of focus groups that politicians are going around, people are beginning to judge Obama much more in terms of what is he actually going to deliver. There's still a huge amount of goodwill, his poll ratios are still very high, but outside America, I think there's still a degree of the sort of honeymoon continuing in a way that perhaps it isn't entirely continuing as much inside. Um, in terms of what he can actually do, I think on the whole that, that's linked to that because in general I would give Obama much higher marks in terms of what he's done overseas so far. I think he has done a lot in terms of opening up different international relations problems in a much more efficient and systematic way in some ways than he has done at home. If you look at the mess in the Treasury or that type of thing, it doesn't seem to have happened as much abroad. And I think also on top of that, there's a lot of people for whom Obama just simply is different. I think the cliched example of the small kid in a Pakistani madrasa looking up at a television station in the, in the corner and suddenly realizing that all the the lies and the poison he's been told about America for the past seven or eight years of his life is actually untrue once he sees that face looking back at him. Um, darker face, second name Hussein. These things matter in terms of the world outside there. What Obama has done quite successfully, I think, to begin with, is he's managed to build on that. I think in terms of things at home, it's taken him a bit more time to get things through. Um, four or five years ago, you wrote The Right Nation, 
and you trace the history of conservative movement from, I think, the McCarthy era, era at, what, at which point it seemed sort of a fringe movement, um, through the second Bush administration, um, and uh, where it was more the victory of the right. I think you argued at that point that even a Kerry administration, had it been elected, uh, wouldn't really be able to reverse the country's rightward drift. And I'm just wondering two things, given that with the Obama administration, do you still see, think of that, or have circumstances changed so dramatically as to cause a rethinking of that? And related to that, are there lessons for American conservatives from David Cameron's experience in the UK? Um, on, the, on the basic question is, does the right nation thesis still work? Um, I think that falls into two bits. One is inside America, what we said, I mean, our argument was that the Republicans were on top, the conservative movement was still the dominant figure in American politics. And that has you know, self-evidently taken a, a knock from what, what happened in the last election. We wrote it before the 2004 election. Um, my excuse, such as it is, is I think it would be almost impossible to imagine a greater series of incompetence um, and, and, and downright sort of theft in terms of, in terms of actually murdering um, the, the advantage the Conservatives had. I think it, even my most wildest ideas about what Bush might have had up his sleeve, I didn't immediately think of him managing to sort of lose wars, run up Katrina, um, push the federal deficit into completely new levels and have all the examples of cronyism and so on. So I think to some extent I think the Republicans gave that away. I think in terms of the overall other message of the book, which was to say that, again, like it or not, America on the international stage is a conservative country. That, actually, I think stands up surprisingly well. And I think, actually, in the personality of Obama, you see quite a lot of trends in that. If you take Obama's views on most things, from the economy through things like justice and crime, even, actually, to, to um, desperate attempt to bring my book into it, even into things like religion. You know, Obama is a much more conservative figure, a much more conservative figure than any conservative leader in Europe, including actually David Cameron, I would make that argument. If you look at his idea of the size of the state, if you look at his idea in terms of justice, crime, punishment, if you look at his idea in terms of some of the foreign policy issues, he's definitely to the right of where most Europeans are. And so I think from all those perspectives, you know, America is still a more conservative force in the world. So that bit, I don't, I don't come back. I think, interestingly, very quick digression, I think Obama actually could change the way that Europeans look at religious America, for what it's worth. I think when they saw Bush, they saw a caricature, rightly or wrongly, of what they saw of, of, of evangelical America. They saw somebody who they thought was um, focused on hell and damnation, the, the, the figure of Obama as a person looking for meaning in his life and finding it in a Chicago church, I think that is something which might appeal much more to many Europeans and actually could challenge quite a lot of their presumptions about the way that Americans are. Um, you asked about Cameron as well. Cameron is the, the, the young conservative leader who seems at the moment a sure thing to, to replace Gordon Brown that is almost entirely due to Gordon Brown's deficiencies, um, <laughs> rather than particularly David Cameron's. There's a, there's a common theme here. <laughs> <in the laughs> <Christian culture. laughs> 
rather than particularly David Cameron's um, advantages at this moment. What, what David Cameron has done is that he has made the Conservative Party electable again, in the same way as Tony Blair made the Labour Party electable. And there's, that comes with a problem. If you, all you focus on is the desire to get a party elected again, that gives you a core, it gives you a set of issues which you identify in order to make yourself look more modern and to make yourself appeal to more people. But it doesn't necessarily give you an agenda to govern. And if you talk to Blair, certainly, Blair will admit that when they came into power, they, sort of, they were so excited about getting there, they didn't immediately have an idea about what to do once they got there. And so that would be the, the issue with Cameron. There was a column in today's Financial Times, an op-ed piece, um, arguing that Thatcherism is mm. dead. Do you agree with that or disagree? I, I, I disagree with that. It's written by a friend of mine who used to work at The Economist. We, we, got, we, got, <laughs> we got rid of it once he was Now, I think, the basic, I think the basic tenets of what Thatcherism was about, I think the basic tenets of a lot of what Reaganism was about, still sit there. Um, and again, you have to look at these things globally. Um, you know, you go to China, go to bits of Latin America, go to developing Asia. You see many of the things which Thatcher and Reagan stood for, that basic push of freedom... I think that still does endure. And to some extent, what you've seen since Thatcherism, and to, I think a lesser extent to Reaganism here, is you've seen a consolidation of what has happened. Now you have a gigantic financial and economic crisis, and that is throwing things up in the air again. But I don't think it's necessarily preordained that they're going to land in dramatically the, the, the opposite direction. Let's talk a little bit about the global economic situation. Um, the G20 recently uh, wrapped up. Was that summit um, a success? What role should we expect President Obama to play going forward? I think the summit was a success to the extent that they, they managed to push down expectations to such unbelievably low levels. <laughs> it was inevitable. Always try this when you're giving speeches yourself. Um, they, they, they pushed it down to such a level where even two days before, Sarkozy was threatening to walk out and generally kind of strumping around the place. And, and, and there was that continual drumbeat that nothing's going to come out of it. In terms of what they did do, I think they, on the whole, the, the main achievements were reasonable. I think giving the IMF more money makes more sense, particularly when you look at the disaster that's unfolding in Eastern Europe. I think the general consolidation around the idea that some degree of stimulus was necessary. They didn't actually focus too much on that. But that, again, was useful. And I think the, at least the verbiage they paid to free trade um, was good, although, from my perspective, that has been completely countermanded by a lot of their actions, not least, actually, in some ways in America, where I think Congress is whittling away in a protectionist direction. But that's Would President it. Obama support? No. I, th I think that's a big question on Obama. From, from our point of view, when we supported Obama, we said that we were worried about him, particularly on trade, and particularly in terms of the relationship between Obama and a Democratic Congress. Because when I look at Obama, I am not worried in the sense that I think he is not a protectionist. I think the people around him are not protectionists. But I do worry about what happens if a China bashing bill in particular comes out of Congress. That, that's the sort of focus of where I really get concerned because I look at the people in Congress and I could see them pretty much 
coming up with anything, particularly the Democratic side of Congress. And what worries me in that context is the bill could come out of Congress, say, in five, six months, at a time when Obama has failed to deliver, say, on health care, when the economy is still, as we point out this week, unlikely really to have recovered as much as some people seem to now hope. And at that precise moment, how easy will it be for Obama to say no? How easy will it be for him to veto something when the unions and various other people will be quoting back to him exactly the words that he said on the campaign trail? And so that, I think, is a, is a problem that he's built up. And what particularly worries me on that is if Obama goes down that route and they deliver, which I think is really the bit you have to most look out for, if they deliver an ultimatum to the Chinese, I think the Chinese are no longer in the mood to take ultimatums from the Americans. I think they will, they, they've already written into the script. The, Ameri the Chinese understand that each time they have a new American president, there is going to be a degree of China bashing. They just, they just know that's going to happen. But their sense of self-esteem, their sense of um, achievement, is, and also to some extent their sense of insecurity about what is actually happening underneath of what is one should never forget, a pretty cruel regime in many ways. That, I think, all indicates that they will not take an ultimatum which says, you do this or else, because they're not in that mood to go that way. And that is, if you want to get very paranoid about what could happen to the world economy, I think that's a place to look at. And perhaps your concerns are exacerbated by today's development. Senator Arlen Specter um, switch party registrations from Republican to Democrat, giving President Obama a veto-proof Senate, That's which could build a fire around, uh, fuel what you're describing. I think I think spect I think there's enough Democrats in the Senate possibly to to see that one off. I mean, the the the, 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 the House Democrats are the particular worry, although there are some fairly lunatic senators as well. Um, I, so not lunatic. And how do you read? <laughs> sorry, merely, sorry, not lunatics in more, so much as merely economically illiterate. The, 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 ones, uh, the ones who are, the ones who I'm, I, the, 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 that said, I think I'll inspector, I'm interested by inspector because I think that is a warning to the Republicans that they have in a sense let things get out of control. If most people in this country, when they're asked to identify who is actually leading the Republican Party comes up with Rush Limbaugh. I think you, you, you have, in a sense, a branding problem for, for the Conservatives. Very good. Let me shift gears just a trifle here before we open it up to questions from the audience and, and talk about your magazine briefly. Your magazine has is one of the few that I can think of that has dramatically increased its subscription rates and grown circulation at the same time. I would like to know what your secret is, <laughs> aside from the fact that Pearson's CEO, I think, is from Texarkana. It's Marjorie Scardino. Yeah. Pearson, Pearson owned half of us, and Marjorie Scardino used to work for us. And Texas, I know, is, is important to her. Um, I, I have, if, when people ask me how to explain what we've done, I think there are two sort of trends going on. One, one of them I've always talked about, which is basically globalization. People feel as if their lives can be impacted far more by things that happen miles away, and you can see it here. If you work in Dallas, you can lose your job to somebody who's in Delhi. You can suddenly find a, a, a competitor springing up in the middle of China. You can find people who are going to change your life miles and miles away. You know. A lunatic in a cave in Afghanistan changed everybody's lives in a way that people who merely focused on the domestic side would never have seen. So for all those reasons, I think you know, that's, that's been a trend that has helped us. The other thing which we're beginning to look at, but I think 
anecdotally rings true is that I think everyone who's looked at the media industry has concentrated far too much on the idea of dumbing down. There's definitely true, there is a big part of the media industry which is, which is shot down. But the thing which interests me is actually, I think there's, there's actually another bit which has gone up. There is a sort of wising up sector which actually is much bigger than people think it is. And it's not, you know, people always come back and say, oh, you're, you're, you're the great example of this, but it's not just us. You know, look at, look at the New York or the Atlantic Monthly. Look at the way that museums are reporting huge attendance. Look at the way that literary festivals are doing incredibly well. Look at the way that symphony orchestras and those sort of institutions are pulling people in. Look at, look, look at the television. You know, look at things like House, The Wire. Now, these are all relatively clever, sophisticated programs. And the same is definitely true. Look at the, the American bestseller list in terms of hist history books at the moment. Um, John Meacham's book, for example, just winning the, the Pulitzer. Nice about Newsweek. Um, the, all those things, I think, point out to me that actually there is this broad level of people which many people have forgotten about who are sitting there. More people have gone to college now. And I think also more people are more prepared to switch between what most describe as upmarket and downmarket. And for me, and I know it's at least one British person in the audience who would understand this, it came home a couple of years ago when I, when I went to a drinks party and I met somebody who was going to take his child in the afternoon to go and watch Millwall Football Club, which is possibly the most brutal activity known to man. And in the, after, in the evening, he was going with his wife to go and watch The Lives of Others, um, an East European, you know, amazingly good East German film um, with subtitles. And the point is he didn't see any difference between those two worlds. They're both perfectly normal to him. You look at the, some of the things which The Economist is bought with at airport, airports, including things like Us magazine, you see people who are buying really quite different products, but they don't think that in order to go and watch an East European film in the evening, you need to necessarily kind of wear a black turtleneck jersey and, um, and, and, and a beret and look as if you're, <laughs> you suddenly become French. Um, it's, it's, they don't, people, people are merging quite happily between those two things. And I think there is, I, I generally think that it's a part of the media market, which is more than just us, but people haven't altogether got hold of it. We, had a, we have a sister publication called Intelligent Life in London, which wrote a, a piece called the, the Age of Mass Intelligence. And I think there is a, there is a bit of that. People, people want ideas. People want some kind of perspective on life. Even if it's only for a bit of the time, they want that, I think, at the moment. Very good. I hope you're right. Yeah. Let's, at this point, open it up. We've got about 20 minutes to take some questions from the audience. If you'd like to raise your hand, we'll try to give you a call. Yes, sir. You John, wanna, maybe you could stand up and yeah, say who sure. you are and ask your question. Warren uh, Harrison with Making Go. Uh, for a, a year or so before this recession, we heard about subprime lending and the disasters that would occur. And all of us kind of looked at it and said, subprime lending, what is that? You know, it's lending somewhere else and doing yeah. things. And then the recession occurs, and it occurs with such dramatic depth and uh, speed, uh, it can't be just subprime lending. I mean, it's something different, something more. And when you talk about Thatcherism and Reaganism being dead, we had 20 years of prosperity that brought us to that. And I doubt that Ronald Reagan ever heard of the term subprime lending. <laughs> uh, I mean, how do you attribute the, the prosperity that we had in those 20 years with where we got to that precipice that we fell off of. I'm, I'm very glad you asked that, because that would have been, in some ways, is a better answer to the, the Financial Times 
article today. Um, it, fundamentally, when people, if you look around the world at the moment, if you look at the last 25 years, when people come to write, you know, historians come to write histories of that particular time, they're not going to call it uh, the war on terror. They're not going to call it, um, the, the, you know, what happened in subprime. They're going to talk about, you know, the, the great opening up, this dramatic change that happened in terms of the world economy since about 1975. They're going to call it the re-emergence of Asia or something similar because this huge power shift has gone on and this enormous change in the economic lives of people, possibly the biggest economic transformation ever, I think, in terms of the amount of people who've been dragged out of poverty. And if you had to ask me a reason why I really think the sort of idea that Thatcherism has, has gone, you just have to look. There's a billion people who have moved from what was effectively a life of destitution to something which, although it does not meet our standards of middle class within the emerging world, it does meet the standards of, emerging class, of, of, of middle class as they see it. That is an incredible change, and it goes in, in dollops, if I can put it this way. If you, if you look at China, for instance, if you look at a sort of bell curve of income distribution, so sort of low, and then a lot of people in the middle, and then down again. If you go back to 1980, and you took a line of, say, $5,000 a year or $3,000 a year, or some nominal amount of, of middle classness, that dollop, very difficult to explain, is one side of that back in 1980, 2000, it just begins to go through, and suddenly by 2005, huge amounts of people have passed through to the other side. And that, I think, is what the, the really big thing underneath it is. And what worries me about the current um, crunch is, you're right, it, it began as a financial crisis, it began as a subprime thing, and it spelled out into Lehman Brothers and so on. But then the financial crisis bred an economic crisis. It's, it's no longer just about the banks. You know, get the crises in Eastern Europe, the crises in Asian manufacturing, that's much broader than, than people initially thought. But those economic and those financial crises have fed back into a political crisis. And then somewhere behind it, which I think is almost the biggest and most pretentious, but, but almost the most important, is that there is this kind of ideological crisis. You know, what, to what extent are people, maybe not people in this room, but people overall running away from those big ideas of opening up? And that, I think, is a sort of challenge of the next 10 years. What do you think the international economy will look like in 18 months? I'm still, I, I, I'm still pessimistic, for reasons you can see on your, your chair. Um, we're still pessimistic, I think, for the, certainly for the immediate term. I think you're going to see a lot of government money pumped into the economy. But I don't really see the sort of long-term sustainable growth. And in the end, that comes down to, you know, it cannot just be government money going into the economy. It has to be some form of private sector enduring gain. And, you know, longer term, I, I, I'd be very happy to bet on that billion people, those, those emerging market people doing a lot. I'd be very happy to bet on American entrepreneurialism. But those, those sort of things are going to take time to come out again, I think. Another question? Yes, sir. We'll First, thank you for being well-informed and benevolent external observer. With that, thank you for being well-informed well and benevolent external observer. With that vantage point, going back to what you said, two things. Very rightly so. We are the largest venture capital fund for the planet, looking at our capital account. And secondarily, Obama having found his meaning in the Chicago church, what, at which point you see that we are running the risk of negating those, perhaps expressed by the fraction of GDP being added to government side of spending? 
I think that's a, that's a global problem. If you look around the world, we're trying to probably hope next couple of weeks to do something on just the sheer size of government debt that has been built up. And that, in a sense, is the bigger sort of medium-term problem. In order to save this, this, this panic which is going on, governments have had to pump money in, and in return they've had to go out and borrow. And there are problems. I think actually part of the Obama stimulus falls in this category where people... They haven't, they've been putting in spending, which is not necessarily spending that can be turned off again once this is, this is through. It tends to look a lot more long-term. So there will have to be cuts of some sort going forward. I do think that when, you, when people come back and look at this crisis and try and work out whether people did well or people did not, it'll be a mixture between people who didn't do enough at the beginning, because that's the lesson of these banking crises, you have to, sadly, flood these things with money. It's what, it's what the Scandinavians did, and it's what the Japanese didn't. But at the same time, you have to have another eye on what is happening longer term. You, you have to have some kind of plan that you can convince the markets that actually there is a, there is a, way, that there, that there is a way you're going to be able to pay this stuff back in the longer term. Yes, sir, on the edge there. Could you comment on, on the uh, possibility or likelihood of the uh, financial crisis and the debts that Eastern Europe owes to Western Europe and the closing markets in Western Europe for a lot of the export-oriented economies in Eastern Europe of blowing up the euro or blowing up the EU itself? Yeah, I, th I, I think that's a, that is a, a possibility which... Um, I think I have, I have mixed feelings about it. You, you, you find some British Eurosceptics who are barely able to conceal their joy at the idea of the whole of Brussels <laughs> disappearing. And there is some trends, actually, on the right in Washington, you also get a degree of that. On the other hand, um, you get a degree of complacency, I think, from the old kind of Euro-Federalists. It does tend to be a kind of age thing, is that people above a certain age in France and Germany just assume that particularly Germany, Germans will pay for this. You know, they will look at this vast zone of bankruptcy, which pretty much goes all the way from Berlin to Vladivostok, and that they will, you know, the German taxpayer will just grunt and say, okay, once again, we'll, we'll fork out. And I, I'm more worried about that. I just get the impression that particularly younger Germans have had this, this, this period where they have seen this difficulty about the, you know, the mythical Polish plumber who arrived and you know took your job, and now suddenly the Polish plumber's gone back home and he wants you to go and bail out his mortgage because he happened to get it in Swiss francs rather than. And I think there'll be more resentment against that. And what worries me, I think, is not so much I think an implosion of, of, the, of the European Union, although I think that is that is something which again people around the world should should you know register that there is a there is at least a chance of that. There's a chance of the euro coming apart because of all this stuff. Um, I, I think what worries me more, actually, is the way in which people like far-right parties, etc., will use this. You know, this is a wonderful calling card for some of the nastier political parties in Europe to go and knock on people's doors and say, look, your money, not only have you lost your job to all these immigrants, but your money is now going to help bail them out. So that area I worry about. It, it, it is possible. You know, I, I think there's a degree, within Brussels, there's a mixture of complacency and terror about this. They're, they're, they're trying to do it in the traditional Brussels way, which is to quietly parcel money off towards Eastern Europe without telling people. 
but it's it, it, it's 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 a very big problem. It's it's that is much more similar for those of us um, who can remember it in my my brief and inglorious career as a banker. It's much much more similar to the sort of 1980s bank crisis, debt crisis in Latin America. It's happening on Europe's doorstep, and somewhere behind it, it's not just economics. There are, that, I think the European Union will bail out people who are either inside the European Union or people who are due just to come in. But what do you do about, say, Ukraine? Because Ukraine isn't in that category. And on the outside of Ukraine, you've got Russia. And that, again, is, is I think, a huge geopolitical problem. There's the initial problem about Ukraine, how do you deal with that? There's an even bigger problem about what on earth happens in Russia. Because we have got so used over the past three, four years to dealing with the concept of the problems that come from an ever stronger Russia, what happens if we suddenly have to deal with the problems of a, of a weak Russia? And I think we're somewhere between those two things at the moment. And Russia has always had this difficult history where its sense of self-esteem, its sense of worth is so linked to its ability to be able to punish the people on its borders. Its, its, its sense of, 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 of nationality is based around its, its ability to dominate its region in a way which I think very few other countries are, and Putin is playing towards that. Another question. In the back, um, the, hand stand, the hand up. The uh, Bush, I mean, the Obama administration pushing the United States towards European socialism, and I was wondering what your opinion is on that, and do you think it'll get very far? Um, I can't particularly remember that article, but I, but I'm sure we did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not. I'm not really sure because I don't think we'd be. I don't really see much evidence of him pushing to, towards European-style socialism, partly for reasons which I pointed out with the, on the Conservative book. You know, he is, whether you like it or not, even Conservative Americans have to face the fact that Obama is actually more to the right than most European leaders. So he, he'd have to jump over the top of all the right-wing European leaders. <laughs> and go. Um, I think there is, I mean, there is, there is a group of people around Obama to, 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 to I think, get at what you're pointing to. There's a group of people around Obama who admire a lot of things to do with Europe in a way that people within, well, God knows, the last Bush administration, but, but even, even, I think, around Clinton and around Bush one didn't. You know, there's, there, there's a group of people who are interested by the way in which Europeans have done health care. There are groups of people who are interested by the way Europeans have done foreign policy. And so you're, I think you're right. There's, a sort of, there's an element of Europeanization in it. It tends to be very specific. You know, you talk to people around Obama who say, and, and, and sometimes they're right to say, they say Sweden has done schools unbelievably well, or Finland's done them well, or welfare reform's been well done in this country, um, or better done in that one. And in, to some extent, that just shows that they're learning from the world, um, because that, that was something which initially, actually, when Bush came in, the, the last Bush, he did do a little bit of that, of trying to look and see where things were done best around the world. But you're right that there is, a, there is at least a, an emotion of, um, of trying to learn things from Europe, rightly or wrongly. Um, I'm not quite sure they go, I don't think it's quite going to become sort of Paris on the Potomac. <laughs> I don't want the evening to go by without at least asking a, a, a
climate change, uh, greenhouse gases, sort of uh, fossil fuels question, how important are, it would Obama actions be on these issues, both internally to the United States and in terms of relations internationally? I, I think he's incredibly important on that. Um, I think within the within the Washington Beltway at the moment, I think you can argue, and this tends to drive Greens insane, but you, I think you can argue that actually, at this precise moment, it would have been better for greenery generally if McCain had won on at least the following element, is that McCain actually had a long record of being involved in environmental stuff. But also, he had the ability, I think, just purely from the party which he was from, to say no. You go to Washington at the moment, it is crowded with every, you could fill several rooms of size with Democratic lobbyists hawking various green schemes. And virtually every senator, congressman, is surrounded by people piling this stuff through. And I just think it's much harder for Obama to say no. And there's this, I think, particularly pernicious idea of the Green New Deal, which I think is confusing all kinds of different ideas into one rather sort of heady cocktail. And it's, there's definitely a case for stimulus. There's definitely a case for green policies. But the way in which people are trying to mix them up is bad. That said, so that's, that's my initial sort of worries about what's going on. That said, I think Obama is crucial because if you look at global warming and <coughs> assume for the moment that the global warming is, is real or at least it's, if it's, if it's, even if you have doubts about it, um, the position we reached was that it's insane not to pay insurance to try and deal with it. It's, a, it's an insurance policy that the world needs on it. And if you look at global warming and the sources of global warming, it comes down to one really simple transaction is that you and I will have to pay something to the Indians and the Chinese to stop them polluting in the same way as we did. Because at the moment, the places which are increasing more dramatically than anywhere else, there was a coal-fired power station going up every week in China. And unless we actually give them money and persuade them that actually <coughs> there is a different way to do it and we're prepared, to, we're prepared to actually fund some of that, then it's very difficult to see anything happening. And the problem on global warming has been that America, within those negotiations, has effectively done nothing. And so what's happened is the Europeans have done sort of cap-and-trade schemes and stuff like that. But from the point of view of the Indians and the Chinese, the Indians and the Chinese say repeatedly, why should we do anything at all if you've done nothing? And from that perspective, I think Obama is important. But what, to what extent he can actually make things happen um, is hard. Very good. We've got time for one last question. This gentleman right here in the middle. With our debt and deficit, what do you see the future of the U.S. dollar? Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe we'll be here for a little while yet. <laughs> we have a somewhat, somewhat tragic history in The Economist. Whenever we put the plunging dollar on the, on the, on the cover, it always soars. Like a, like a, <laughs> um, uh, the, I'm always, uh, the, the horrific thing is actually, from the point of view of a, this ties a bit into the media industry, um, the point of view of being a, a British-based publication, or one which reports its numbers in Britain, the, the only good thing about the dollar at the moment is it's been unbelievably stronger than sterling. So all our numbers and dollars converted into the sad third world currency that we have to deal with. <laughs> um, we've looked very good. I, I, I think at some time, yeah, the dollar runs into trouble. It must do. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't, the, the, the dollar has had this slightly fake effect, I think, I mean, one rather interesting one to look at is the Canadian dollar, American dollar exchange rate. 
And what was completely bizarre about this to me is when the crisis began, you had Canada, which may not be to the great interest of everyone here, but Canada at least, at least in principle, and actually in practice, you know, Canada has an amazingly sound banking system, probably the best out of all the, G, um, the, the G7, G8 countries. It had virtually no toxic debt of any sort. It ran things brilliantly well. And what happened was the moment things got difficult, millions of Americans promptly grabbed their Canadian dollars and rushed them back to America with the result that the, the, the US dollar went up against it. But I think longer term, you know, the, the, the Canada at the most moment looks more healthy in that respect than the American dollar, so it must rebalance again. I think there are similar numbers all the way around the world. Debt is a big part of it. But the worry in the markets will always be that the American government, or, and, and don't get me wrong, I think the British government, anything I say about the American government at the moment, you can multiply about 10 to deal with the um, less, less efficient administration we have. The, 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 the American government could try to inflate its way out of this problem. And that, that is something which worries financiers all the way around the world and must, in the end, have an impact on the dollar, I think. Very good. With that, I'm going to conclude our conversation here, and thank you for spending part of the evening with me. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.